Hello, I'm Yunit Levy from Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts. Unholy talking Jews, talking news. That is what we're doing. And Yonit, you are the anchor of Channel 12 News in Israel. And you, Jonathan, are a columnist for The Guardian. That's right. We're reminding people always what we do. But right <laughs> here, we talk Jews and we talk news. And Yonit, huge amounts of news in your part of the world. Oh, wow. Right. We are uh, recording this directly after the lists for Israeli elections have been finalized, meaning we have six and a half weeks before the elections. And it means no more mergers are possible. There are still dropouts that are uh, an option. Maybe I'm foreshadowing what we might talk about. But yes, uh, an, an immense amount of, of political news coming out of Israel this so week. So it means we're sort of breaking convention because this is already really the weekend for you. And yet here you are, you're, you're talking to me on a Friday morning. I mean, what would you normally be doing early, early, early on a Friday like this? Reading like five Israeli newspapers. <laughs> 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 Trying to read them as quickly as possible before anyone wakes up. That is my, yes. But instead, I'm talking to you, which is, which is, I think, more fun. It I, is. I, I mean, this is normally a very big working day for me because I write a weekend column for the paper in London. And uh, Friday is, is normally a really big and intense working day. So we've, we've added to the stress here by starting early, but no shortage of what's going on. And so midnight was the sort of witching hour for Israel and for this upcoming election. Exactly. Um, I think the whole story of the finalizing of the list, which is like an important threshold uh, on the way to Election Day, uh, is more about what didn't happen than did, right? I mean, the uh, Gidon Sar and Naftali Bennett option of a merger didn't happen. Um, Gantz didn't drop out. We can talk about that, of course. And Labor and Merits didn't merge, and neither did Labor run with anyone else. Um, all of this, just to sort of put a bottom line on it, pretty good news for Netanyahu. It means that the right, or let's, we should get used to calling it not the right and the left, but the anti-BB camp and the pro-BB camp. So the pro-BB camp is pretty much unified and the anti-BB camp is pretty much fractured. Uh, so that is, you know, that is the news coming coming out. We, we can roll the dice and pick on whoever, I actually said pick on, I meant pick whoever we want to start with first uh, to discuss, to kind of uh, go into the granular detail of what, what we want to talk about. Uh, no, I definitely want to go granular, uh, obsessively so, very looking forward to that. <laughs> but just on this big you picture obsessive. point... <laughs> um, I, I think on, on yeah, superly nerdy on this sort of subject. I like uh, you know we're we're both going to dive in deep, but I just think the big picture point that you mentioned uh, has to be right that you know he gets to look like the kind of giant, and there's the seven doors trailing after him. But it was from the outside, it was kind of like that anyway. Um, there is just this sense with every Israeli election, and I see it even among sort of journalists, a sense of you know, I'm going to switch off, wake me up when it's over, because there is this fatalistic assumption that, you know, whatever machinations there are, who's up, who's down, new parties, mergers, splits, in the end, it'll be Netanyahu who merges as the prime minister. That's just now a kind of law of nature uh, about Israeli uh, politics. And even when the election's over and it looks like he's lost, still somehow <laughs> three months later, he's still there as prime minister. So that's why you find it's a really sort of shrinking market of, of super nerds who are really interested in the fine grain detail. Um, but no, I think it, it matters. The other slight sort of non-fatalistic thought is, look, they've tried the other way of having a single challenger, Benny Gantz or, you know, Bougie Herzog or whoever, and that didn't work either. 
to prize him out. So maybe in some as yet undefined way, having lots of, you know, split fragmented opposition, who knows, maybe that can work better because it certainly didn't work the other time. Well, I, I think what's interesting this time around, right, uh, is that you really don't have, as you say, you don't have that main Netanyahu challenger emerging. I had an American friend call me up the other day and he said, you know, I understand there are many parties in Israel, but who's who's running against Bibi? Is it Bibi versus who? And I said, you know, it's it's Bibi versus COVID, to be honest, right? I mean, we are in the middle, the midst of a pandemic in Israel. The numbers are dire, uh, right? We just hit the 5,000 dead mark, which is terrible. And and at the end of the day, if we are in the same, we are six weeks into lockdown, we are in the same, with the same numbers that we had six weeks ago, the numbers aren't going down of the infection rate. If we are in the same situation mid-March, uh, uh, Netanyahu is in a big, big, has a big problem. Uh, you know, he imagined this sort of campaign being him walking with the vaccination rollout being perfect, the numbers going down, him rolling, walking between cafes in Tel Aviv while Europe and the U.S. are still closed. And suddenly it looks like, you know, if we'll be able to take uh, take away from cafes and sit somewhere on a sidewalk, that would be a big deal. So I think that is the one thing that kind of needs to uh, be in your heads uh, to anyone trying to follow the really baffling corridors of Israeli politics, that should be the one thing that that can make a difference this time, for sure. But within that, I mean, I'm like with your friends, uh, probably in the United States saying, because they're used to a presidential system, so new, who's the guy who's taking him on? And, and we should say it is almost always guys. Uh, the Israeli political landscape incredibly, intensely testosterone to quote friends from the 1990s. <laughs> I mean, it is very, very male. But, but I mean, you know, I suppose, uh, uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, that the one person the anti-BB camp is crystallising around, the man we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, former TV host, like you, former columnist, <laughs> like me, Yair Lapid. <laughs> And, and and author of thrillers like you, Jonathan, we should mention as well, o although one? under his own name. Um, but yes, that is uh, so. A as you say, it is it is sort of crystallizing around Yair Lapid. I think Lapid is kind of utilizing a convergence of resentments. Right? He's the the anti BB camp. Remember that Lapid is first of all officially the head of opposition, and of course he broke with his own party, the Blue and White Party, when Benny Gantz decided to go into Netanyahu's coalition, and he was left out. He decided not to opt for that. And, I, you know, he was basically a rarity even in the Israeli left because parts of the Labour Party did enter the coalition. So he's sitting on that resentment and also the resentment of, of course, the anti-Orthodox sentiment that is very strong in Israel. We talked about that. Um, he's not being, he toned that down, that rhetoric, uh, but he's still sort of seen as that symbol of secular Israel. He doesn't have to say anything against the, the ultra-Orthodox and he doesn't want to say anything against them, but he's definitely sitting on that uh, sentiment. So he can grow stronger. We kind of see that in the polls. Again, we have six and a half weeks. That's eternity uh, in Israeli politics. Uh, but when you talk about Yair Lapid, I think thus far he has been sort of dismissed, right? Okay, he was a huge television star. He was even Netanyahu's finance minister for about two odd years, but he wasn't ever considered as a serious content contender. It was, it was sort of, he doesn't have enough gravitas. Um, and, and remember, he had to bring on three IDF chiefs of staff with him in the blue and white party to be considered serious. And I think it goes to this sort of undercurrent in Israeli society, right, that the 
that, that when Americans kind of want to know what status you're in, they ask you, you know, they want to see if you're Ivy League. They want to see if where you went to school, where you went to college. In Israel, it's always where did you do your military service, right? If you're a country under existential threat or you feel like you're under existential threat, you want the the general to, to support you and to be there. And so it's very commonplace for generals to go into politics. I and just have, have to say on this, the comedy of this is that Britain, as you speak there about, you know, Americans ask which college you went to, Britain is so retrograde that here it's what school, as in high school, as Americans would say, even elementary school, you know, prep school, as the ruling class would put it in this country, uh, that you went to. So you're, you know, the the background is something that would be nothing to do with you. It would be purely a choice your parents made, nothing about your ability. Maybe that says something about the three different countries. In Britain, it's elementary school. In America, it's college. But in the but in Israel, it is absolutely as you say, it's the military. Could- Completely. And that is what will give you the ticket to the top, right? By the way, I think that in the United States, for the first time in more than 30 years, the president and the vice president are not Ivy League, which is something to point out. But in Israel, what you have is what did you do during your military service, right? So Bibi and Gantz, of course, in the elite commando unit, Sayeret Matkal, to say nothing. I'm sorry, Bibi and, and Bennett, Gantz and Ashkenazi, of course, the idea of chiefs of staff. And Yair Lapid was a reporter for the uh, military magazine, Bamachane, right? The Israeli version of the Stars and Stripes. Um, so what the subtext against him, well, it's Israel, so the subtext is basically text, right, was always, wait, this guy that has no combat experience, he's going to save us from Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, etc. Um, and that is that is something that is really ingrained into, into the society. I think it's changing, right, because, and we'll talk about Benny Gantz and the devaluation of the idea of the general jumping into politics, but you suddenly realize that politics is a profession. You need to be good at it. It's not a hobby. I think it's so interesting, this point about the military background and how important it is. Because I remember when Ehud Olmert took over after Ariel Sharon had his stroke. And a lot of commentators at the time were thinking this was itself a turning point because it was partly generational that the old guard, the sort of founders generation, had given way to this younger generation. But also that it was a kind of technocratic figure, Ehud Olmert. He didn't have this sort of starry military background and therefore this was perhaps charting the future for uh, Israel and yet it doesn't sort of seem to work out that way Um, you know we go here we are you know 15 years on and we're still having the same sort of discussion and maybe it will be disqualifying for Yair Lapid I I think you know the, the, the story you mentioned about Benny Gantz who obviously was a former chief of staff and tried leading this blue and white party and by the way he came very close we should say that I mean it wasn't mm-hmm. like that he was crushed but I'm wondering if actually the picture is that in Israel yes it's necessary to have that kind of background but it's very much not sufficient you know that if you're Benny Gantz you can run and lose Ehud Barak was pretty uh, much a failure as a, as a politician. Yep. Yes, he made it to prime minister, but kept on losing. And, uh, you know, I, I've watched enough of Israeli elections to remember, you know, the likes of Amram Mitzna, who was seen as a potential saviour for Labour. Oh, wow, that's Led going the, back in the past. Going back a long time. But he, you know, because he was he was a former, I think, a f- former sort of governor, military uh, commander in the uh, West Bank, and he was, you know, decorated soldier. Is, you know, perennially, the left particularly reach for these military figures, mm-hmm. don't they? And then it kind of doesn't work out. And yet maybe to not have it, as you've been explaining about Yair Lapid, maybe that also is not, uh, you know, doesn't work. So you kind of have to have it, but it's not enough. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think that's accurate. And obviously, the left has 
is more prone to that sort of picking the generals, right, because it, it wants to be seen as uh, this, a strong uh, uh, political party. So you see that a lot. It's very commonplace in Israel. You can go through all decades of Israeli uh, uh, history, and you can say Yitzhak Rabin and Moshe Dayan and Ariel Sharon, and Ariel Sharon. you know, it goes on and on, right, uh, from the left and from the right. And even when you talk about, like, an Israeli, in the Israeli discussion of who is the future of Israeli politics, they put out two names. One of them is Aviv Kochavi, the, the, the current chief of staff of the IDF. And the other is Yossi Cohen, the head of the Mossad. Again, very security, defense-oriented. This cements a certain worldview that, that of course, sort of uh, permeates politics. And also, it excludes uh, people, right? It excludes women uh, or that, that are not rising the ranks so quickly in, in the military, although there is a change in Israeli in the Israeli military uh, vis-a-vis women in combat, uh, uh, etc., but it excludes women, it excludes minorities. It's, it's, it's a problem. But still, as you say, uh, if you do have that coming from the top brass of the military, you're already, you have an edge. Um, which brings us to Benny Gantz, who decided not to drop out. Now, uh, a lot of people are expecting that. We have to say that he's, you know, remember the, the film in the 90s, right? Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So it's Honey, I Shrunk the Party, right? Um, a lot of people expected him to, to drop out. He's a man who, of course, decided to join Netanyahu, made basically every mistake. It's like a tragedy of errors. Um, and then only to say, you know what? I realized this guy cheated me and now I'm back in the anti-BB camp. And this is where I want to be. He's not, he's sort of dangling on the threshold of the uh, electoral the electoral threshold. Um, what can we say about him, Jonathan? As well, you said, I, he I, was a great success trying to prevent Netanyahu from forming gov- government for three three times until he uh, actually joined him. Well, I think it does show these limitations of what had been a kind of left impulse, which is mm-hmm. to reach for the reassuring general. I mean, it is. I think, you know, we've talked before, uh, just last year was the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the last non-BB figure who is remembered outside Israel, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, as a politician, uh, and still kind of Im- is symbolizes, um, embodies the, the Israel that isn't BB. I mean, if you know, there are diaspora Jews who the last time they felt really sort of comfortable lining up behind an Israeli prime minister was when it was Yitzhak Rabin. Barak a bit too. Um, but the but the assumption of both actually was that in order to ha- offer any kind of message of peace, you have to reassure people with the, you know, the medals on your chest and mm-hmm. prove that you have that track record. And what Benny Gantz shows is the limit of that, I think, because... He was a former chief of staff. He had all the credentials. He had the medals on the chest, but he didn't really have a vision in his head. And that is what you, it seems, uh, seems that's what you need. And the fact that he wasn't also an adept politician so that he couldn't see what, you know, they say in Northern Ireland, what, you know, the dogs in the street knew that you (laughs) cannot do business with Netanyahu, that he will trick you and let you down. Everybody knew that, you know, and the the sort of kids in Cheder knew that, the dogs in the street knew that, but somehow Benny Gantz didn't know that. And people from the outside, again, we watched that and thought, you know, is, is, is he privy to some kind of insight that eludes all the rest of us? Answer, no. You know, he <laughs> just got uh, chewed up and spat out by Netanyahu. And I, I'm really fascinated by what you say about whether or not he'll make it across the threshold i can't really see the reason if you're an israeli voter to vote for him um 
because if you aren't looking for a sort of center cent you know centrist reassuring alternative to bb there are options on the right and if you're looking for an option on the sort of center left you've got lap yaya lapid and labor there so i don't really get what his kind of market niche is um and i don't think he enjoys tell me if i'm wrong does he enjoy a personal following i can't imagine much well i think it's it's funny i keep thinking when i think of benny gunza that there was a cartoon in the new yorker a few years ago of two people standing on the roof of a building and one person saying to the other during my meteoric rise to the top i failed to notice i was in the wrong building um (laughs) yeah he's not he's not a career politician you see that it's it's pretty it's pretty clear as for the reasons to vote for him what he's saying is look i made a mistake i realize that but i stood in netanyahu's government and by the way jonathan he's the defense secretary and the the alternate prime minister until Israel sets up its new coalition that can take months, just to put that in an asterisk there. But he says, I'm the one who stood uh, against any attempt that Netanyahu had made to uh, curtail the judicial system, to delay his trial, all of that, I, I stood as a, as a wall against it. So that is, I think I should be, you know, uh, uh, that, that's why I should uh, receive your support. Will it work? I'm not sure. But I am sure that in, in, if in two or three weeks he realizes that he is more a liability than an asset to the center left uh, in Israel, he will drop out. I mean, that, that I, 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 I really assume is, is what might happen. Really interesting. And you've reminded us before that he has this legal point till November, where unless there's mm-hmm. someone else, he becomes a prime minister. And maybe that's why he's staying in because he thinks to get that I've got to be in the Knesset you know you don't if you want to win the lottery buy a ticket and so you know he needs to at least be there maybe he's clinging to that really interesting about the dropping out thing because I was partly thinking this midnight deadline means these are now the parties but uh, as you reminded us people can drop out we talked um last week about Merav Michaeli this new mm-hmm. uh leader of the Israeli Labour Party, again, for people outside, the, the, the understanding of Israel is there's Netanyahu and then there's always was Labour. Um, I think it's really interesting, this decision that you, that you know, not to merge and not to make a little, you know, multiple alliances, with all these little parties. I think it's really, uh, you know, a, a brave move by her, actually, to do this. Um Partly because, you know, I think it sort of it it suggests confidence, and you you know I think the polling numbers for her are okay, pretty good, but it's reminding me of just something about the about PR systems and you know proportional representation systems. We obviously don't have that here. People always think of them as a really good idea because they accommodate difference. So that, for example, in Britain, if we had a PR system. The Labour Party here would have split into sort of Jeremy Corbyn Labour on the left and, you know, the rest of Labour as separate options. But what you really realise watching the Israeli system is it's not just about allowing for ideological difference. It's about allowing for personal difference. And so (laughs) many of these little parties that sort of have come and gone. Like, you know, I, um, we were talking about some of them last week who've just not made the threshold, but nor have they merged into Labour. There really was no reason for them except the personalities and ambitions of their leaders. So, you know, Ron Huldai with his party, the Israelis or whatever, you know, what really was the need for that other than his own desire to be a party leader? And if there isn't enough support for that, then in a way, it's quite good that Mikhail isn't saying I'm going to you know, indulge you by calling our party a sort of three-part merger of all these. 
there's one Labour Party and if you want to be in it, fine. And if you don't, then don't, rather than indulging this sort of narcissism of small difference. So I sort of admire that from the outside. I don't know if it will work. What, would you think it will work for her? <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, Ron Khordei uh, being a failure in national politics proves again that running Tel Aviv and running Israel is... Di- Tel Aviv is not Israel, if you needed more proof from that. Right. Um, look, it's a dangerous game, okay? As you said, it's brave. Let's talk on... March 24th and see if it was brave or it was foolish because uh, Meretz and, uh, and and Labor Party, especially the Labor of today, after their internal uh, uh, primaries, you can't, you have a state-of-the-art microscope, you're not going to find the ideological differences between those two parties. It really is the Judea's people's front and the people's front of Judea, only it's not funny, right? <laughs> and if you, it's true that if both of them pass the electoral threshold, it's going to be bigger, right? They're, they could bring nine seats together and then that's bigger for the whole sort of left uh, center block. But what if one of them uh, doesn't make it? What if Meretz doesn't make it? And then you are basically just putting out the red carpet for the Netanyahu government, because we have to remind our listeners it's a 60, the magic number is 61, right, to, to rule the Knesset to form a coalition. So it's a dangerous game. And I think that we will only know if it was brave or foolish uh, in six and a half in six and a half weeks. Right. I, in my mind was actually the smaller parties that, mm-hmm. that, that, that Labour was not merging with. Um, but you're absolutely right. The merits thing is is uh, much more serious. That sort of uh, progressive left party, and if uh, they are excluded, that will really be a big sort of if they fall short rather of the threshold. No, my point was really just about this fascinating thing to me about uh, this personality factor, which I don't think it's in the political science textbooks, but I think <laughs> Israel is the demonstration case. That these, the fragmentation, which you read about always on ideological lines, Israel shows you you've got to account for ego and ambition and personality because PR allows everybody to be the, you know, the leader, the chief of their own tribe. And that yep. is, uh, you know, something that is just not, there's no room for that in a regular uh, parliamentary system. What, what else is, we talked about the left, what else is, uh, right, will, how, uh, uh, how about the right? The right on the right side of the political uh, spectrum, you have the extreme right joining hands with the even more extreme right. Right, the uh, Betal Smotrich, who used to be uh, Bennett's political partner, merging with Itamar Ben Gvir, who is the political descendant of Mary Kahana, and be ex- been ex- accused of racism and homophobia and xenophobia. Um, and it's really important to say that until Mr. Netanyahu himself stepped in, right, as the person responsible for this shidduch, he did the same thing in the first cycle of the elections in April 2019, Itamar Ben-Gvir was really beyond the political pale in Israel. Um, and, and Netanyahu made the fact that he was pushing them both together, he made him more uh, legitimate. I, you know, I have to say that it's, it really is when you just look at the at the politics of this, right, and the fact that... Netanyahu is like the Beth Harmon of politics, right? He would sit across 10 chessboards and play games against 10 people at the same time. He is that determined to win these elections. Of course, it's also a fight for his political and and, and legal life. But the way in which he, on the one hand, is going to push together the extreme and the extreme right, and on the other hand, pander to the Arab vote, right? It's like like the U.S. president saying, you know what, I'm going to talk to Black Lives Matter and I'm going to talk to the KKK in the same week. Um, but that is what he does. He is in it to win. I remember interviewing Ayala Chiquette for The Atlantic two years ago, and she said something that kind of uh, resonated. She said, Netanyahu is the most determined person in Israeli politics to be prime minister. And that is the way he is playing the game. 
Yeah, I mean, often we say, you know, when a team lose in football, we say, oh, the, you know, the other side wanted it more. And that, in, in a way, is often how you do feel that when it comes to uh, politics, Netanyahu just wants it more than the others. He goes that extra mile. I think the um, this development of the uh, Ben Gvir, Itamar Ben Gvir and his uh potential entry into uh in, in into well first parliament but also into a netanyahu government it is troubling uh from the outside in well more than troubling it's it's really appalling to imagine this uh far far rightist being given that kind of legitimacy and you know you mentioned that his uh, ideological mentor is Meir Kahana I was in Israel the year after Kahana's election and really remember the way he was shunned and ostracized deemed beyond the pale so that um I think the Israeli media completely ostracized mm -hmm. him just wouldn't put him on the air um and so you you know he's almost actually like an early precursor of Donald Trump losing his Twitter and Facebook platforms, you know, they they effectively silenced him. Uh, and, you know, even figures on the right, I think, uh, you know, wouldn't would, would shun him, wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. And here, as you say, Netanyahu acting as matchmaker to ensure that he gets into the Knesset and his votes are not wasted by falling short on the of the threshold, but instead being, you know, adding those far right votes to a potential Israeli coalition. I think it's um, it's a you know yet another low, but I don't think it's a coincidence that Kahana was an American. You know, he was an American immigrant to Israel who brought that some of those sort of American sensibilities about particularly television um, into the country. He was you know he wasn't on TV much because they kept him off, but I saw him a few times and he was mesmerizing in in that uh, in in, the, in that way. And so yeah, it's it, you know. One thing we've talked about quite a few times, Israel as this sort of oddly trail trailblazer for trends in politics, science and other things that then come to the rest of the world. And uh, and Kahana maybe was one of them. He was a sort of, you know, charismatic modern populist ahead of the crowd uh, yeah. there. So if we're talking about Israel being a trailblazer, <laughs> let's, uh, let's leave the scary quarters of Israeli politics and talk about vaccinations specifically. I mean, I can talk about what's happening here with the vaccination operation, of course, being uh, very done very efficiently, but the rest is not is not uh, uh, working according to plan. But I'm actually very interested, Jonathan, in what is happening uh, in the UK, which actually seems to be very efficient in the vaccination rollout and the what is happening with the EU, those kind of vaccination wars. Yeah, vaccines are obviously huge news here. There's a huge parallel between Israel and Britain on the whole story because essentially both countries are getting the vaccination rollout right, having got, in Britain anyway, everything else wrong. The numbers are still massively high of infections uh, and hospitalizations, massively high in Britain. But the country has proved itself, uh, having done a very good job on vaccination, some 10 million now uh, vaccinated here. And that's opened up this really strange contrast and confrontation with the EU. I say strange because it's upended, really, the argument about Brexit 
where the EU's failure to organise supplies of vaccine has almost become the best argument for Brexit because the British government of Boris Johnson has been able to say, look, by being on our own, we were nimble and agile and we could sign our own contracts with the vaccine manufacturers where the big, clunky, lumbering 27-member EU has took you know three months longer to sign those contracts. And the result is there's just less vaccine available uh, on the continent than there is in Britain. And that forced this confrontation because the EU essentially said to the manufacturers, you haven't got enough for us. Why can't we have some of Britain's supply? Britain obviously said no. And by way of revenge, retaliation, uh, the EU tried to uh, block or limit the supply of the Pfizer vaccine to prevent that getting into the British market. And the, 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 the backdoor sort of gateway for that was going to be Northern Ireland, uh, which is governed by different protocols from the rest of the UK. Uh, and that was seen as an incendiary move because Northern Ireland, obviously, there was a 30-year war, in effect, there, violence for 30 years. It's to be handled tremendously sensitively. And the Euro European Union, by being reckless with Northern Ireland, lost, in a way, some of the moral high ground that people who are on the anti-Brexit side of the argument always felt the EU had. So this has been, you know, people talk about vaccine nationalism. This has been a real vaccine international standoff between the European Union and post-Brexit Britain. And unexpectedly, uh, for people like me who are on the Remain side of the argument, anti-Brexit, that, you know, it has put the EU in a very negative light and has been a kind of advertisement uh, in the hands of the Brexiteers for what Britain can do when it operates alone. So it's brought together a whole lot of two of the big dominant issues of our time in Britain, coronavirus and uh, Brexit. But for British politics, like Israeli politics, there is still this big question about, you know, if you've mishandled a lot of the pandemic, the fact that you've handled the vaccination well, is that enough for the politicians? Uh, you know, does that mean the, the, the public opinion is forgiving of them? And obviously that question still remains to be answered. I will make a note from the Israeli perspective and the Israeli experience that um, sadly Israel is discovering that vaccinations are not the quick fix, right? That they should be. Uh, that numbers are still very, very high. Uh, as I said, Israel reached the uh, um, mark of, of 5,000 victims of the coronavirus. And, and it isn't, it's going to take time. Um, we are moving uh, swiftly to our Chutzpah and Mensch Awards of the week. Jonathan? We we are. There is just no shortage of <laughs> candidates for the Chutzpah Prize uh, this uh, week. I mean, f f probably the front runner has to be Marjorie Taylor Greene. This uh, should we say eccentric? I mean, maybe that's far too. Dry. I don't. In British She's in a, British land, you can say eccentric. I could. That would be yes. sort of euphemism. I mean, she she is the Republican Congresswoman from Georgia who is fully signed up for QAnon, mm -hmm. for a whole variety of conspiracy theories. She is a so-called 9-11 truther, which means she does not believe the truth about 9-11, but has constructed conspiracy theories. But it also emerged that in amongst all the things she believes, uh, she holds that the wildfires in California were caused by, and I kid you not, a Jewish space laser. We have a space laser? Uh, <laughs> You I never mean, told me that, that we, we have, have a... Where are you hiding the space laser? You ju Diaspora Jews are hiding the space laser, aren't they? 
Well, the elders of Zion <laughs> gather once a week to decide where they should aim the Jewish space laser. I mean, you have to laugh. I mean, the people have been saying, yeah, that's what I wanted for my bar mitzvah, you know, but it is just deep conspiracy Wait, 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 wait. I just have to, this, this point I, I have to ask, is it an orthodox space laser? Is it reform? Is it conservative? Does it work on well, Shabbat? There, there are a lot of questions in my head about the space laser thing. You and I know that if there is such a thing as a Jewish space laser, there cannot be only one, <laughs> right? There have, there will be two. There'll be the one you use and the one you wouldn't Exactly. It's like that joke about the synagogue. No, but I mean... <laughs> the synagogues on the desert island. I mean, it, of course there has to be multiple Jewish space lasers. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, for sheer... I mean, Chutzpah is putting it far too gently, the idea that uh, there is such a thing. I mean, she would get... It doesn't fit... That just fits the sort of racist tag rather than the Chutzpah tag. The, what makes it Chutzpah is that in pleading her case before her fellow uh, Republican Congress people this week, uh, she because they, there was a move and it was successful to strip her of her committee positions, uh, she argued that no, she no longer believes that, and uh, you know she moved away from all the QAnon stuff in 2018. At which point, of course, people promptly brought out a whole list of tweets and Facebook posts that she had liked and given the thumbs up to that showed that she was not telling the truth when claiming to have disavowed all this stuff. So I think she gets a she gets extra chutzpah points <laughs> just for the way she's handled the space laser stuff as well as actually believing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, all joking aside, they're like, the, it, this is worrisome. I mean, first of all that the claims are just becoming crazier, right? This is like something from a bad LSD flashback, okay? And <laughs> the first thing. And the second thing, I mean, where is where is the outrage when someone says something like this? Um, what, you can say this about the Jews and it doesn't matter? I mean, it, I, that is, I think, the worris, worrisome current under this uh, extremely, you know, crazy the, the theory. That, that we must yeah, have. I agree. I think it me and the fact that, uh, yes, um, you know, some republic they had a vote on it, and some uh, Republicans voted. I think uh, eleven voted that to strip her of her committee positions, but the overwhelming caucus uh, voted to stand with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I know there's a constitutional argument, you know, or political argument, a process argument that says this should be up to us Republicans what position she has, not Democrats, and it's a bad precedent. I get that, but. But, but broadly speaking, and there was another vote as well about Liz Cheney and the House leadership and whether she should be punished for uh, supporting the impeachment of Donald Trump over the attempted insurrection. Overwhelmingly, Republicans are standing with Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon-like, you know, uh, absorbing base. This is not a good place for one of America's two main political parties. The idea of somebody espousing what is old-fashioned anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and not being excommunicated and banished uh, by her colleagues is troublesome, puts it very mildly, very Englishly, Yonit. Uh, uh, I think it's a you know, horribly gloomy uh, uh, moment in American politics. And one which means we need to have brighter thoughts and so we should nominate a mensch. Okay, so chutzpah, we have an agreement. We're not even going to try to, to nominate another uh, um, uh, person, but... Oh, no shortage of other candidates. We could put <laughs> no, but plenty we're in complete of other people agree. in, but Two Jews actually her. agreeing on something is, is a good mission that, yeah. for Shabbat, I think. Uh, no, but I would... I, uh, mensch, you mentioned the mensch award, so I want to give uh, the mensch award to a menchette, um, Ruth Dayan, who is uh, an Israeli, not only the widow of Moshe Dayan, the Israeli general turned statesman. I think we mentioned him earlier on this program today, uh, but also an Israeli icon. She died this morning, Friday morning, a month before her 104th birthday. 
Um, she was born in Haifa, spent her childhood years in England, Jonathan, and after her return to Israel, met Moshe Dayan, fell in love, had two kids. Uh, one is Yael, who turned politician like her father, and Asi Dayan, who's an actor and director and one of the uh, great cultural icons of uh, Israeli history, but also Ruth Dayan herself, who set up um, an Israeli startup, Maskit, uh, which started by bringing the arts and crafts from women who made Aliyah and turned to a trendsetter in Israeli fashion, really an Israeli icon. And in Israel, they, they tend to compare the Dayan family to the Kennedy family. Uh, and she is the mother, the mother of that clan. Uh, and she passed away today. Well, I've, that's uh, a good, a very good mention to honor and to remember. And the Dayan name is one of those storied names that is understood all around the Jewish world. And, um, you know, I remember being on summer camp, age 15, when word came through that Moshe Dayan had died. And, you know, I think there was this sort of moment of pause and silence. It's just one of those names that, you know, storied names that does connect, actually, uh, Israel and uh, diaspora. And, uh, but, you, you know, Ruth Dayan, obviously, as you've explained, a big person in her own right. So she deserves our recognition. My nominee for Mensch of the Week, very, very different. Uh, I don't, I've never met this man and I don't know much about him, but Mo <laughs> Moshe Rosenberg, he's announced that he is going to publish soon the superhero Haggadah, a story of signs and marvels. The Haggadah, of course, being the set text that guides us through the Passover Seder, tells the story of uh, the children of Israel and their emergence from slavery in Egypt. Uh, I'm one of those people who collects Haggadot. Um, I want a very proud possession of mine is one from the Marxist Zionist Hashomer Hatzair movement, wow. um, which uh, instead of saying that God delivered the children of Israel with an outstretched arm, it says the power of workers' liberation took the children oh of Israel out of slavery. I'm seeing a bonus episode on uh, Passover. We'll have to come back Just to that. When, writing when, itself. When Pesach comes, we'll have to come back to that. Um, I don't have a huge collection of Haggadah, but the superhero Haggadah, a story of signs and marvels, sounds marvellous, uh, um, literally marvellous. I don't know if it's going to be the literal Is it like Superman, Spider-Man, etc., saving Bnei Israel, you know, Or I, I, the Jews themselves are the he superheroes? How does that work? I don't it's, know. It's, and all we've got to go on so far is a graphic. Um, and it's, you know, it doesn't have actual Batman or actual Superman on there. So maybe it's going to be uh, superheroes of Moshe Rosenberg's own but, invention. But he has form on this. He was the author of the unofficial Hogwarts Haggadah, oh, the wow. Harry Potter Haggadah. So um, I just love that. I think any any uh, new take on uh, the Haggadah is welcome with me. I think that's wonderful. I, I, I think it's a good place to mention, by the way, that many Jews were behind the stories of the superheroes, right? It's the Schuster Siegel who 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 created Superman and then sold it for $130, oh, no. right, in the it's 1930s. So they're good on creative, bad on business, but still. Uh, and of course, Stan Lee, who is the creative mind behind Marvel Comics and all of that, uh, um, you know, Spider-Man, X-Men, Hulk, I am such a geek. And, and also, of course, uh, Wonder Woman, which we have. Right. Because She's of Gal Gadot. Uh, um, really... I, I think there is a whole university thesis to be written on the <laughs> Jewishness of comic book heroes. And, this, and the person who's channeled it best is the novelist Michael Chabon with his novel Cavalier and Clay. The, perfect book. The perfect, I mean, perfect book. brilliant writer. The idea of the superhero as a Jewish fantasy in a time of mm -hmm. Jewish weakness and powerlessness 
in the era of the Holocaust that these young Jewish boys around the world fantasizing that there would be some caped crusader or hero who could rescue them it's very poignant in the novel but i think for the you've mentioned all the all the key names uh it's poignant because it was real it spoke to something that was there in the very kind of terrified jewish imagination in the 1930s and 1940s so moshe rosenberg is in has good lineage he has good <laughs> yichas when it comes to uh, imagining jewish superheroes and it's a natural fit to put it together uh, with with the Haggadah. We can only agree with that. Um, Jonathan, from the 20 degrees Celsius in sunny Tel Aviv, I am mocking don't, you, sitting here mocking you with my T-shirt. That's about 68 Fahrenheit for don't our American listeners. <laughs> you know, it is warm where you are and cold and wet here, even if we have a tiny bit of February sunshine. Remember, Unholy is available wherever you get your podcast. Do subscribe, give us a review, and I'm only going to want a five-star rating. Why even argue? Let's not haggle about that. Go <laughs> straight to high. the five stars. But we are available wherever you get your podcasts. Unholy, Talking Jews, Talking News. Uh, Yonit, who do we need to thank? We shall thank uh, Rom Atik, uh, head of podcasts, Anya Irbashan, and Lior Friedman, our editor. And I shall see you next week, Jonathan. See you then, Yonit. <laughs>